Many of you know we are studying the book of Leviticus together this semester. And my first week introducing Leviticus, I told a story of a friend going to see Dick, Nick Offerman in um, seeing him do his stand-up. Nick Offerman is Ron, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. And so he, during his stand-up, he actually takes out a Bible and opens it and reads from Leviticus. And he does this to show how laughable Leviticus is. And his point is that Leviticus is either something that we should laugh off, like Christianity is something we should laugh off, or um, it's laughable at best or dangerous at worst. At worst. And tonight, we're actually going to be reading probably the high point of Leviticus's offensiveness. So this is a very, uh, this will sound, some of this will sound very offensive to our modern ears. Um, and a lot of these things covered in these chapters, we're going to be covering chapters 12 through 15. We're not going to read all of it, but covering these chapters will still sound um, quite sensitive to our ears. So I'm going to read for us what's printed on the bulletin. Um, it's just some selections from these chapters. And this is God's word. Um, he gives it to us because he loves us and is completely true. Starting verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as, is her, as in her menstruation. And then she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. Starting verse, chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous, disease, leprous diseases on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease area disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed in these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering and the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. When you come into the land of Canaan, which I will give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, 
lest they die in their uncleanness by defying my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the word of the Lord. So, right, this is weird. Stuff that I never thought I would, words I never thought I'd say in front of RUF. Um, And these are the clean laws in Leviticus. Chapters 12 through 15 are um, the clean laws. What makes someone ritually unclean makes someone ritually clean. Um, in, in preparation for this, I read a book called Unclean by a psychologist named Richard Beck. And in that book, he talks about the psychology of disgust. Um, and so he starts the book with this, this story of what he calls the solo cup experiment. And the solo cup experiment is you take a solo cup and then you have someone spit into it and then you tell them to drink it. And people, most people, are disgusted by drinking their own spit. Some of you are. Some of you are like, that's not a big deal. I do that all the time. Um, But so what this reveals to us is there's something about us that when our spit, which we're fine to swallow when it's saliva, when it exits our body, it becomes something foreign and then becomes something disgusting. Right? Somehow, if we were to take it back into our bodies, it would contaminate us. And this idea of contamination is um, is something that's common to all human cultures. um, But this idea that if you have some sort of contaminant, it will, even the smallest bit will contaminate the whole. There's another experiment this book talks about where um, they take a, a, they give someone a glass of orange juice and then they drop a cockroach in it and stir the cockroach around in it and then take the cockroach out and say, will you drink it? Would you guys drink that? No. Some of you daring be like, well, how much do I get for it, right? But most of you would not drink that. Well, then what they do is they actually take this, they say, well, what if I took this glass of orange juice and I ran it through a purifying system um, similar to your tap water. And then I boiled it. And then I purified it again and gave it to you. Would you drink it? And still a lot of people said no, that they wouldn't drink it. They're like, I know that it's illogical. I know that it's cleaner than water. But I still wouldn't drink it because just the, like, the thought that it had touched a, um, a cockroach, right? This idea of contamination. And this isn't just with food. It's very present in food, but it's not just with food, right? We do this with each other. We have an idea of people who are in and people who are out, um, right? Like this, this struggle between like, not wanting a particular person inside because of the fear that they will contaminate you somehow. Right? This is why when we, someone who, we see someone who's dirty or smelly, um, we try to stay away from it because there's this fear of somehow being contaminated. This is why some people, one reason perhaps why some people don't get bits to sororities or fraternities, the fear of contamination, right? This being accepted or being unacceptable. Um, it's this experience, this psychology of disgust, um, the way that we relate to things that are clean or unclean, right? We do this, we disdain people um, we, that we think are outside of us and try to keep them out, or our own desire to be inside and not outside, and this is one of the, the ways that we navigate the world, right? I mean, I do this all the time. We, we, we make this distinction between inside and outside. You do it in your family, right? There's people who are inside your family and people outside your family. And you have distinctions um, as to who is allowed in and who's, who's not. C.S. Lewis, in 1944, gave a lecture at King's College in University of London. And the name of the lecture is The Inner Ring. And he puts this dynamic this way. This is on your bulletin. He says, my main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire, the desire to be in, is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It is one of the factors which go to make up the whole world as we know it. 
This whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment, and advertisement. And if if it is one of the permanent mainsprings, then you may be quite sure of this. Unless you take measure to prevent it, the desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. From the first day of which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. What he's saying is this struggle isn't going to go away. Like for many of you, the one thing that keeps you from a complete nervous breakdown about where you stand in the wake social hierarchy is the comfort that the categories of acceptability are so rarely defined as in or out. Right? Um, they're usually these degrees of awkwardness. In Leviticus, this is what makes Leviticus so offensive, is that there aren't degrees. There are clean and unclean. This is crystal clear with this. Leviticus is crystal clear with this. The clean get one thing, and the unclean are cast out into the outer darkness. And what's worse is that in these passages, God is the one who's doing the excluding. Now, we're used to this kind of behavior, right, from those girls or that fraternity, but not from the God who's supposed to be all about acceptance, right? So how in the world are we supposed to make sense of these clean laws? Um, I want to give thanks to Les Newsom, who gave me a lot of the, the material I'm working with tonight. Um, So first, if you look at your outline, that's what we're going to do tonight. So first, what are the the clean laws? Well, first we need to understand what God meant when he called someone unclean. First, what you see in reading through these chapters is that eventually everyone is going to be unclean. At some point in their lives or even um, some point each month. And the labels of clean and unclean usually make us think about moral purity. Like that if someone is unclean, then they're somehow bad or sinful or evil. But to be unclean was not a moral category. Rather, it's a statement about your ritual status as a Jew. It dealt with how a person or an inanimate object was viewed and treated when they're in a particular condition. When people were declared unclean, it didn't mean that they had sinned. It didn't mean that they'd done anything wrong. But that something was out of place in their life. Something was imperfect. And in chapter chapter 12, we find that women are unclean after childbirth. Now, this is an especially offensive passage in the Bible. First, why does having a baby, which is a wonderful thing, why would that make someone unclean? And second, even more offensive than that, is why would a woman be unclean for one week when she has a, um, a boy, but unclean for two weeks when she has a girl? Why is this? Well, verse 7 hints at the explanation. It says that she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. And there it is. When a woman has a baby, she bleeds. And you're going to find this again and again in Leviticus, that blood is intimately connected with life. Blood is life. And when you bleed, it makes you unclean because you've lost some of your life. It hints at death, and God is saying that there can be no death in his presence. But why two weeks when the girl is born? Um, There's a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? And um, the author Paul Coppin answers this question this way. He says that blood is a powerful symbol of life, but its loss symbolizes death. Hence the uncleanness associated with with it. But why the seven-day uncleanness for a boy versus the 14 days for a girl? And here's what Coppin has to say. He says the mother experiences bleeding at birth, yet such bleeding is common in newborn girls as well due to the withdrawals of the mother's estrogen when the infant girl exits the mother's womb. So we have two sources of ritual uncleanness with the girl's birth, but only one with the boy's. Okay. Chapter 13, um, chapter 13 talks about skin diseases. And here the priest is less like a doctor and more like a health inspector. His job was to determine the type of skin disease, the type of leprosy, 
Um, leprosy is the Bible's word for skin disease that were common in the ancient Near East. And, in the ancient Near East, not just Hansen's disease. So determine the quality of the disease. And so if you're determined to have one of the qualifying diseases, you were quarantined so the disease would not spread. And I know what you guys are probably thinking, to walk around with your hand over your mouth crying out, unclean, unclean, um, this goes beyond quarantine. This is, this is psychological damage. This is public shaming. Um, hold that thought. Okay, so giant 14 then ta- or, sorry, chapter 14 then talks about the giant celebration you went through after your unclean diseases were healed. And then chapter 15 outlines the various bodily emissions that would make you unclean. Not only was a woman unclean during her period, but a man was unclean every time he ejaculated. Really, any time any fluids left your body, you were, you were deemed unclean. And why is this? Again, it's because life has left your body. It was abnormal for life to leave your body and go out from you. But one of the really important subtexts of this chapter, of these chapters, is that everyone had to go through these experiences of being unclean many times in their lives. Now, why would God require this of his people? Here's what the clean laws mean. Well, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, um, my guess is that you've, if you've ever asked a Christian about this stuff in the Bible, these chapters in particular in Leviticus, they've responded with something like, well, that's the Old Testament God. Um, but this example is too simplistic for it to be true. Because the testimony of the Christian church is that there is one God, and he does not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is the same both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. So why the clean laws? Well, the clean laws represent a parable about how sin has messed up the world. They're a parable to us about how sin has messed up the world. Let me remind you of the story of the Bible. The Bible tells a story that in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made all things for his own glory. And he declared them good. And then he made man and woman at the pinnacle of his creation and called humans very good. And he created humans to exist in a dynamic love relationship with him. God himself is a community of love, of self-giving, other-centered love. And he created humans, male and female, to participate in his love. And to fill his creation with this love. And so he set man and woman in the Garden of Eden. They were to be holy, which means they were to be set apart for God. And God gave them one law. You may surely eat of, the, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For when you eat it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve sinned in the face of the threat of death, and the result was catastrophic. Their sin, eating the forbidden tree, resulted in shame. They knew they were naked. It resulted in guilt. They hid from God. It resulted in fear. They responded to God, I was afraid. It resulted in death. And it resulted in exile. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, dismissed from God's presence. For God, who is life, cannot be in the presence of sin, which is death. And one of the tricky things about sin is that we do everything we possibly can to pretend it's not there. And so God, as he pursued his people, as he rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses, as he brought them into the wilderness, um, he did this so that he might dwell with them. And he sets up this tabernacle in their midst, this tent, this temple where he dwelt with them. And he gave them instructions here in Leviticus as to how to live so that they could enter into his presence. And so that they would learn how sin has messed up the world they live in. And these clean laws show us the destructive effects of sin in three ways. First, the clean laws tell us something about God. 
The cornerstone of the book of Leviticus, the hinge on which it hangs, the main point of this book is God's self-declaration, I am holy. I am holy, and however you think of me, if it doesn't begin with you trembling at my holiness, then you're not worshiping me. And as mundane and tedious and weird as these laws are, they are shouting to us that God will have nothing to do with death or disease or decay. God is life, and death cannot be in his presence. Second, the clean laws tell us, or tell us something about ourselves. It is said that sin does to the soul what dirt and disease and decay do to the body. It defiles you. It defiles you in three ways. It isolates you and alienates you. It eats away at your insides. And it discolors and disfigures the image of God in you. So sin defiles by isolating and alienating you. When you see dirty, sick people, you stay away, Right? Sometimes the smell is enough to keep you, have you keep your distance. If you want to be close to people, you have to wash. You know what this is like. Um, when I come home from a long run or a bike ride, Mary Clark will not kiss me because I smell and, um, and I'm dirty. So I have to bathe before she will let me into her presence. In a similar way, sin isolates you and alienates you from God. Second, sin defiles you by eating away at your insides. Um, last night, Leo, my five-year-old son, and Mary Clark got in an argument about his pants uh, because Leo keeps trying to wear the same pants over and over and over again. And um, if you remember your pants, I think it's, I don't know if this happens to girls. Marilyn is only three, so we've yet to see it. But boys, if you remember your pants when you were five years old, they had holes in all the knees, right? That's because you would not let your mom wash them, and you wore them over and over again, and the dirt on the knees... Um, wore through the pants, right? Dirt has this power to, um, to eat away at the fabric. Um, similarly, um, infection breaks down our bodies. And God is saying, as powerfully as he can with this, that sin wears out your soul. Sin eats at you. Um, and third, sin defiles you by discoloring and disfiguring the image of God. My sophomore year of college, my grandmother, my nana, passed away, and she died of ovarian cancer. And I remember um, in her last weeks just seeing how cancer ate away at her body. If you've had family members who died of cancer, you've seen this. Like she became a shell of who she was before. That, um, that cancer eats away at people. Death eats away at people. Um, what God is saying here is that... Um, that that these things have these bigger effects. Like the second half of chapter 14 is all about how mildew will destroy your house. Wherever sin goes unchecked, you have a soul that is disfigured and warped. So the clean laws show us that God is holy. The clean laws show us how sin defiles us. And finally, the clean laws show us that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. I think it's interesting that even houses can be declared un- unclean when they get mold and decay in them. God is saying that man's rebellion is so much bigger than just individual acts of right and wrong. No, that sin has in fact become pervasive and systemic. It's entered into societies and worldviews to the point where any kind of war or anger or poverty, greed, corporate cultures of cheating, all are billboards that show us how sin spreads in the world. God won't let us focus only on individualistic sins, but he forces his people to see the systemic, wider, bigger effects of sin as well. So in this, we see that the clean laws tell us the story of the human predicament. 
And whether or not you're a religious person, the fundamental question of the human existence is how can I be right in the world? How can I be right in the world? And the clean laws are providing a parable to make sense of why we ask this question. Right? We can't just write these off as weird practices of some ancient Near Eastern superstition. They are preaching to us a message that we need to hear. And understanding these clean laws will help us to better understand a couple of stories in the New Testament much better. Um, in Matthew 8 and 9, we're given a series of events. First in Matthew 8, uh, we're told of a leper coming to Jesus. And the leper says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, make me clean. I want to be in just as much as he wants healing. He wants to be on the inside of the religious and social life of Israel that he's been on the outside of because of his leprosy. His uncleanness has kept him out. And for any of those, for those of you who have ever felt like you're on the outside, you know what this is like, right? I remember being in elementary school and riding my bike by my neighbor's house, and he was having a birthday party that I wasn't invited to, and we were in the same grade. And just that feeling, like how much it hurt that they were having fun and I wasn't invited. I was on the outside. Or you know this when you're flipping through Instagram and you see that fun thing that your friends did that you weren't invited to. Being on the outside hurts. And the powerful point of Matthew 8 is what happens in the next verse. It says that Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches the leper. He says, I will be clean. Oh wait, you're not supposed to touch that man. Right? That would make you unclean as well. But Jesus touches the man and immediately he is made clean. And then in the next chapter, Matthew 9, we hear of a woman who has a 12-year menstrual period. She uh, set aside the, the crippling and depressing health issues for a moment. And realize, what must have this have done to this woman to know that for 12 years she couldn't come near the temple? For 12 years she couldn't be in God's presence. But we're told that she touches Jesus and she's healed. And her physical healing is a parable for us. Not only was she not bleeding anymore, but she was cosmically and spiritually in. She who was out had been brought in. She was made clean. And right between these stories, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. They see him eating and drinking with the morally unclean people. The kind that you don't associate with. The tax collectors and the sinners. And they say, the Pharisees say to Jesus' disciples, they say, why does your teacher eat with these unclean people? And Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so what's going on here? Well, the Pharisees are concerned about Jesus. They fear that he's going to be made ceremonially unclean by his contact with unclean people. And this is because of contamination. Being made unclean. It's about negativity dominance. All right, this is the, the psychology of disgust stuff that I said at the beginning. Negativity dominance means that even the smallest amount of contaminate contaminates the whole. So think of um, the cockroach and that orange juice experiment, right? That even the smallest bit of cockroach talking that, touching that orange juice makes all the orange juice gross. Negativity dominance um, is, uh, is this thing. It's, it's why when, when something dirty touches something clean, we want nothing to do with it. It's why we don't want um, people that we don't like in our groups. 
right? Because we fear that if that person is on the inside, then somehow they're going to contaminate the whole. Negativity dominance is why you get excited when some people come to RUF and why you're uncomfortable when you see other people's here. And the clean laws, as we've seen, are all about negativity dominance. Pollutants have negativity dominance. God is holy in life, and the clean laws exist to teach people that death could not be in God's presence. So when Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, what is he saying? Well, sacrifice is all that's required to make someone clean to come into God's presence in the temple. And mercy is the extension of the love of God to the unclean. So what Jesus is saying is saying is if you are a Christian, your life should be marked by getting dirty. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are to move towards those who Wake Forest has deemed unclean. If you love God, you will be obedient to that love. So we need to ask the question, why hasn't RUF broken into some areas of this campus? Who do we treat as unclean and fear being contaminated by? I want you for a moment to hold in your mind a person at wake who you purposely avoid. Hold in your mind a person at wake who you purposely avoid. Why do you avoid them? Jesus desires mercy, not sacrifice. We're unwilling to cross social boundaries because we fear contamination. Because we know that when the pure and the polluted come in contact with each other, the pollutant is the more powerful force. The negative always dominates the positive. The cockroach always makes the orange juice disgusting. The orange juice never makes the cockroach delicious. And there's only one example, only one exception. Sorry, there's only one exception. And that exception is Jesus. Right? When Jesus touches the leper, he doesn't get leprosy. The leper is made clean. And when, when the woman with blood discharge touches Jesus, he doesn't become unclean, but she's healed. Jesus is the only positivity-dominant thing in the world. Pollutants don't make him dirty. He makes them clean. And all of this finds its fulfillment on the cross, where it's there where Jesus was made unclean for you. He took it all. He took the sin and the guilt and the shame, all of it, onto himself, into himself. 2 Corinthians 5 said... He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He has washed you. He is washing you. He can make you clean because he became the unclean one for you. Why did he do this? Because Jesus in his death and resurrection is the way that God has provided for you to enter into this dynamic love relationship with your creator. Through his death on the cross for your sin... By the power of his Holy Spirit, the cleansing you need and long for is yours through faith in Jesus. So look at the cross. Look at the work that he did for you so that your sin might be cleansed, so that you might be welcomed into the very life of God. One last thought. Chapter 14 says this. Um, It says, The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of his right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. Does that sound familiar? It's the same ritual that was used to mark the priest out as holy, set apart by God for service in the tabernacle. Likewise, the leper is marked out as holy, clean before God, from head to toe, set apart for service to God, just like the priest. High priests treated like lepers, cleansed lepers treated like high priests. The outsiders, once cleansed by God, become part of the royal priesthood. And their mission is to go and touch outsiders like themselves. This is God's good plan to bring us in and to bring others in with us. Let's pray.